Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen and this week we'll be looking at issue number, what number is it? 593, uh, April the 20th, 1996, £1.50. pence. We're ebbing ever closer to issue 600 of Kerrang! The cover stars for this week's Kerrang! are the Wild Hearts and Terrorvision, the Booze Brothers, the Wild Hearts and Terrorvision, Drunken Disorderly Road Riot, Fear Factory Bush and Rancid UK Tour Dates, Machine Head, their first gig of 96, Win a Sepultura Silver Disc, Leopard LP, hear it first, Manix President's Napalm Death Civ, Save £5 on LPs by Rage, Paradise Lost and Face Down, and four mega posters of Reef, Rage, Slayer and Garbage. If you would like to get in contact with us here at Kerrang Back Issues, we can be contacted via Instagram, Kerrang Back Issues, Twitter, Kerrang Pod, and email, Issues at gmail.com. One small thing that I do need to mention before we start the podcast is that um, the music for this week, it's neither The Wild Hearts nor Terrorvision. No, uh, both of them have quite recently been on the cover of Kerrang, so they've both had their music featured. So I thought I'd go on a slightly different tangent this week. And last week, the album... Through Silver and Blood by Neurosis was reviewed in Kerrang! and it got 4Ks. So I thought I would uh, play that this week. It's a great album. I mean, it's so heavy. It's such a, yeah, such a timeless record. Um, anyone that hasn't listened to it, definitely, definitely check it out. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy that one. Let's crack on with the episode this week because uh, we've got a lot to get through. So this issue of the magazine was created with the following stimulants. The new Jesus Lizard album, a night out with Girls Against Boys, an office visit from the legendary Tom G. Warrior, phone calls from Barney Greenway, again, Crowbar and Mike Borden, those cheeky mood swingers live, the hilarious Orange Goblin, Civ's scorching London sellout, potato wedges, Frascati in the evenings, excessive drunkenness at the Camden Palace, Hamish Macbeth and a box of Quality Street. One, Starting this week where we always begin, news. Kerrang! is set to celebrate its 15th birthday this summer by hosting the third annual Kerrang! Awards. Bon Jovi, Terrorvision, Machine Head Reef, Skunk Nancy, Manic Street Preachers, Iron Maiden, Brian Adams and Black Sabbath were among the stars to pick up awards last year with Nirvana receiving a posthumous award for their Unplugged in New York album. To present individual awards last year, the likes of Sepultura's Andreas Kisser and Therapy's Michael McKeegan flew in specially, while Maiden bass player Steve Harris curtailed his holiday and Skunk Nancy returned from the US in order to attend a star-studded ceremony. Another highlight came with Metallica choosing the awards to announce that they had decided to escape from the studio and play a one-off gig, Donington. This year, the Kerrang! Awards promised once again to be the rock event of 1996. The biggest and brightest stars of the past 12 months will be recognised at the awards, their efforts being rewarded with arguably the highest accolade in rock music, the coveted Kerrang! Awards themselves. And with Kerrang! set to celebrate 15 years as the world's biggest selling weekly rock mag, the 1996 awards will be cause for a double celebration. But the Kerrang! Awards are nothing without Kerrang! readers. The fact that the readers voted for most of the categories meant that it really was special, admitted John Bon Jovi on last year's ceremony. Machine had summed up the whole day with a comment as much directed to the alcoholically challenged attendees as it was to Kerrang! readers. Drink it all, fuck it all, smoke it all, but most of all, thank you all, proclaimed Rob Flynn. Once again, 
This year, Kerrang! readers will play a massive role in deciding who will win no less than eight of the coveted awards up for grabs. Next week, you'll find more details on exactly how to cast your votes for your favourite band. Bush. The multi-platinum UK stars are to play a one-off UK day at London Charing Cross Road Astoria on May 22nd, all because of Kerrang! The London foursome were scheduled to play a date at the Astoria on March the 19th but cancelled the show at the last minute due to touring commitments in the States where their debut album 16 Stone has now sold more than 3 million copies. At the time, it seemed unlikely the band would announce any UK dates before the end of the year. Incredibly, the band changed their minds after reading a letter in the March 30th issue of Kerrang! The letter written by a Kerrang! reader called May from London attacked Bush's decision to pull the date and pleaded with the band to reschedule the gig. Bush found a window in their schedule and decided to fly home for a London one-off. Tickets for the gig are on sale now. Fear Factory have revealed that they are eager to work with chart-topping hardcore dance act The Prodigy on their forthcoming remix album Remanufacture. As the acclaimed Californian cybermetalers announced details in their headlining tour of the UK, see below for details, guitarist Dino Cazares told Kerrang! We've already spoken to The Prodigy about doing one or two remixes for the album and they're up for doing it if they've got the time to spare. Fear Factory are aiming to release the remix album cleverly titled Remanufacture through Roadrunner in the summer. The record, as has already been reported in Kerrang! will feature six tracks from Fear Factory's highly successful Demanufacture album, all completely overhauled. We want to work with various different people on the record, explains Cazares. Front on assembly will definitely be involved and apart from the prodigy we're also talking to Moby and Technohead. We want to use Remanufacture to get us across to a different type of audience. In the meantime, the band will be spreading the word of their ever increasing army of fans over here, with seven forthcoming UK headline dates. Fear Factory begin their European tour with an all ages show London Kentish Town Forum on May the 5th. They will then tour Europe before returning to play Wolverhampton Wolfram Hall July 2nd, Manchester Hop and Grapes 3rd, Buckley Tavoli 4th, Nottingham Rock City 9th, Bristol Beer Keller 10th, Bradford Rios 15th and Glasgow Garage on the 16th. Los Angeles hardcore rappers Manhole will support on all dates with Swedish all-girl doom metal crew Drain added to the bill on the July shows. Bruce Dickinson is planning to launch his own airline which aims to offer couples very intimate romantic flights across Europe. Details of Bruce's latest project are still being finalised but Dickinson, a qualified pilot, has confirmed that he intends to call the company Mile High Airlines and hopes to have the operation up and running before the end of the year. While the singer kicks his heels waiting for his Mile High liftoff, he will be touring the UK with his band, now known as Skunkworks. The dates are Portsmouth Wedgwood Rooms June 5th, Nottingham Rock City 7th, Wolverhampton Wolfront Hall 8th, Glasgow Cat House 9th, Bradford Rios 10th, Manchester University 12th and Norwich Oval 13th and London LA 2 on the 14th. Skunkworks have just released a new single Back From The Edge through Raw Power Castle. Faith No More vocalist Mike Patton has just released a bizarre solo album recording in hotel rooms across the world. Entitled Adult Themes For Voice, it is a 38 track release featuring an assortment of mad vocal noises and experimental sounds and is said to make Patton's work with Mr Bungle look positively inspired. Adult Themes is out now on import via Tzaddik Cargo. Elsewhere on the Faith No More front, drummer Mike Borden has joined Ozzy Osbourne's touring band as stand-in for the recently departed Randy Castillo. 
Borden has been recruited by Aussie as a temporary replacement and it's being stressed that Borden will not be leaving Faith No More. Faith No More are actually in the middle of recording a new album. Apparently the band have already written 10 songs, all co-written by the trio of Borden, Keyboardman Rodney Bottom and bassist Bill Gord. They're expected to record a further five songs when Borden finishes his stint with Ozzy. However, it's not known who will play the guitar parts as Dean Mentor has now left the band. Borden and Patton aren't the only members of Faith No More involved in outside work. Roddy Bottom's side project Imperial Team will shortly release their debut album Seasick. And what does Seasick sound like? Well, apparently, a cross between Nirvana and 70s new wave oddball Jonathan Richmond. American news, and we start this week with Dom K in New York. Alice in Chains have just taped an MTV Unplugged and the Brooklyn Academy of Music, the Seattle Stars' first show in New York for virtually three years. As you can imagine, the gig was the talk of the town, although at the time of going to press, there were no details available as to just when this will be broadcast on either side of the Atlantic. The Seattle Gloom Kings popped up again a few days ago on the first show of a new comedy music program called Saturday Night Special. They joined Bush and Garbage on the show, which is being produced by top comedian Roseanne Barr. The hope is that Saturday Night Special will compete against the long-running and hugely popular Saturday Night Live. Molly Crew drummer Tommy Lee is said to be ready to sue penthouse publisher Bob Guccione over photos the latter apparently has of Tommy having sex with his wife Pamela Anderson. Guccione is said to possess a video of the pair in an intimate action and apparently plans to publish stills in Penthouse. But not if Tommy has his way. The Motley Wildman is ready to slap a $10 million lawsuit on Penthouse to prevent publication. Pamela and Tommy claim the video was stolen from a locked safe in their Malibu home. According to reports, the safe, which also contained childhood and family photos, was raided by a construction worker doing alterations to the house. It was then sold to Guccione. Pamela told newspaper USA Today, The people who would buy something like this are the same people who would buy an OJ Simpson tape, people with absolutely no lives. To make matters worse, another unnamed party apparently has a copy of the already infamous tape and is ready to sell it as a home video. What price? Corrosion of Conformity, the New Orleans band, who many feel will break big very shortly, supporting Metallica on their planned late 96 European tour. According to informed sources, the deal is as good as done. Corrosion of Conformity are currently mixing their next studio album at Electric Ladyland in the city. It's been produced by John Custer, the man behind their acclaimed 1994 offering Deliverance. Helmet frontman Paige Hammond has a slightly odd side project. When not leading Helmet, Paige plays guitar for Joe Henry, who happens to be a country and western band. What's more, according to informed sources, Joe Henry are becoming a bit of a sensation on the underground country scene. Will we hear this influence on the next Helmet album? Next up, we have Lisa Johnson in LA. Psycho Maiko recently made their only planned American live appearance at the Whiskey in LA. It was bassist Rob Trujillo's last gig with Mike Muir and the boys before he hooked up with Ozzy Osbourne's band. The show turned out to be a blast and there were no outbreaks of fighting in the audience. Why is this worth mentioning? Because Muir's previous band, Suicidal Tendencies, were banned from the Los Angeles area for years as they always seemed to attract gang violence. And... Following a set of Psycho Micro tunes, the five-piece launched straight into four suicidal tracks that brought the house down. 
As the fans worked themselves into a screaming frenzy, original suicidal bassist Mike Carr took over from Tregilio for the last number, Subliminal. The show climaxed with the returning Tregilio and drummer Brooke Wackerman jamming on a version of Black Sabbath's Iron Man before the other three trooped back on for a run-through of two infectious grooves numbers, Violent and Funky and the aptly titled The Way to Make Your Booty Move is with Infectious Grooves. Carl will be staying with Psycho Maiko for their upcoming tour of Australia before the band decide on who will take over from Tregilio. The Beastie Boys recently headlined a benefit show for Clean Needles now at the Palace in LA, an organisation who want to encourage the authorities to provide drug addicts with clean needles, which would cut down the risk of AIDS infection. The Beasties were a surprise last-minute addition to the bill, which also featured Sick of It All. Oh, and the Beasties decided to play a totally punk set. And finally this week, in American news, we join Kevin Roberts in Seattle. Songs about the late Kurt Cobain are currently appearing at the rate of one a month, according to Seattle's music bible, The Rocket. In the two years since the Nirvana leader's suicide, more than 20 songs about him have seen the light of day, and this number will soon double with the forthcoming release of the album Angels Bleed, Songs of Tribute, from Seattle and beyond. A sombre compilation put together by Main Bass Reversing Records and Seattle CM Records. Most of the artists on the album are unsigned and all have contributed a song inspired by Cobain. A portion of the profits from this record will be donated to an agency who work with chronically depressed young people who can't afford to get treatment. Courtney Love's childhood snapshots, including her christening photo, feature in a just-published unauthorised biography on the whole singer. Called Courtney Love, Queen of Noise, it's been written by one Melissa Rossi and published by Pocket Books in the US. The book includes a lot of previously unpublished pictures of Courtney given to the publishers by her estranged father, Hank Harrison, without Courtney's permission. Pearl Jam might not have finished their new album yet, but there is new material from the band doing the rounds, courtesy of a series of live bootlegs. The mysterious Blizzard label have issued three double CD sets recorded last year in Salt Lake City, San Jose and San Diego on the Vitology Tour. New songs featured on these recordings include the unofficially titled Lukin, Brain of JFK and Mosquito. One CD, even as the band hacking their way through So You Want To Be A Rock and Roll Star, made famous in the 60s by country rock legend, The Birds. So we now come to one of our two cover stars for this week. The boys are back in town. It may be the gig of the year. The Wild Hearts return in front of 400 people at the Garage London and the place is going mad. Only one man can bugger it up. He's Razel and he's about to get on stage and start singing. Saturday, April 6th, it's 3.35pm, we're pulling up in a cab outside the garage, a small nondescript venue that stands on Highbury Corner, North London. On the glass entrance door, someone has pinned a piece of white paper on which a note has been scrawled in black ink. It says, the mood swingers sold out. They may as well have hung a 50 foot sign over the building with the wild hearts emblazoned across it in bright pink neon letters. Only those who are blind, deaf and have been living in the hole for the past several weeks have not worked out that Ginger's mob are playing the garage tonight. As our feet hit the curb, we see bassist Danny strolling down Holloway Road towards the garage. He's got a new haircut which makes him look like a punk rock Elvis Presley or the Fonz from Happy Days. After subjecting his quiff to a course of steroid injections, we enter the venue and Daniel grasps the gasp of a fan as he grabs a glossy flyer from beneath the box office window. It's advertising the Sex Pistols gig at Finsbury Park on June 23rd and it shows that Wild Hearts are on after Skunk and Nancy and before Iggy Pop. Look at that says Danny a big smile creasing his face. 
our name on the same bill as the Pistols. The Garage Show will be the second of three warm-up dates which precede an eight-day UK tour, which in turn precedes the release of the new souped-up version of Fishing for Luckies. The Mood Swingers are back in business. Inside, there are only a few people scattered around the dimly lit gaff. They would all gradually answer to the term roadie and they are all engaged in the mind-numbing activity known as sound checking. This mainly involves the repeated clouting of the snare drum. The empty school hall-like acoustics make it sound like a cannon going off in your skull. Drummer Rich arrives right on cue accompanied by guitarist Jeff. Both are sporting new cropped and spiked barnets courtesy of Demon Barber Chris McCormack, lovable rogue brother of Danny and guitarist with three colours red the middle act on this evening's free band bill. If you're foolish enough to get drunk round McCormack's Camden flat, be prepared to wake up the next morning looking like an electrocuted hedgehog. Ginger is the last of the four wild hearts to wander into the building. He's wearing an orange woolly hat. The word fucker is delicately woven across the front. He politely acknowledges those about him, then heads off to sort out the day's business. Rich, meanwhile, is showing off an Easter egg a fan gave him on the way in. The fan in question is one James Mickelson. He's the first Wild Hearts devotee on the scene and he is also the drummer for a band called Fruit Cocktail. James is clutching the shiny, happy Wild Hearts poster from Kerrang 590. It already bears a couple of autographs. So far I've seen Rich and Ginger, says James. They were both friendly. Rich offered me some crisps and I gave him an Easter egg. James has been standing outside the garage for an hour. Trouble is, the little tyke's only 14 and consequently deemed neither mature or responsible enough to purchase a ticket for the gig. Nevertheless, James eventually blags his way inside to watch the Wild Hearts run through their paces. Maybe he bought a packet of Futus earlier. The Wild Hearts don't sound check for long. They play Elvis Costello's Pump It Up and a new song called Red Light Green Light, which will be the second single off Fishing for Luckies after Sick of Drugs. Then Ginger says, Raymond, we have need of your vocal services. Yes, your lad from the Karang Cap is about to go um, from fly on the wall to fly in the ointment. Ginger has decided that the Wild Hearts will encore tonight with a one minute plus punk rant entitled Raise Hell, which was originally written and performed by a band called Marionette. Spookily, their singer was a bloke named Ray Zell. Richard turned up at my flat a couple of days ago to borrow a couple of Marionette's seminal 1985 long player Blonde Secrets and Dark Bombshells, so the Wild Hearts could set about the task of learning Raise Hell. Two weeks before a tour, you'd think the Wild Hearts would have more important things to do. We run through Raise Hell, curiously, Ginger appears to be struggling to master its one chord. That's because he hasn't been turning up to rehearsal, says Jeff. Don't worry, responds Ginger. I'll be alright on the night. By five o'clock, a couple of hours before the garage doors officially open to the public, Ginger and Rich are signing anything a couple of Scots lads can throw at them, and Jeff is failing miserably to flag a cab down outside. The hapless Stretfield has forgotten that the Wild Hearts are off to Leeds to play a Radio 1 Sound City show straight after the garage gig. He's trying to get to Richard's flat to pick up his stuff. We persuade him to admit defeat and join us in the pub next to Highbury Underground Station for a beer and a chat. The most recent Wild Hearts recruit wears a badge that reads, I'm new. He used to come to London with his mates to see bands when he was a nobody. I'm still a nobody, he says, eyes fit to pop. It's just that now I'm in a somebody band. Are you looking forward to playing the new material to the uninitiated tonight? Nobody knows what we're going to play tonight, even us, he scoffs. In Wolverhampton the other night, we went on stage, we hadn't really rehearsed and it was just a case of playing anything we'd done on the last tour and any of the new stuff we knew. Your little spot tonight is the only one we know we're going to do and we don't even know we're going to do that. You could chicken out at the last minute. 
Back in the garage, Ginger is surveying the dressing room. It is, he says, blue, square, not very big. It'd make a nice fridge if they put some ice in it. Then he laughs. This seems like as good a time as any as to ask him why he hasn't bothered to turn up to rehearsals. Um, I thought if we'd been too rehearsed, then it'd be really boring is the man's suspicious theory. So I thought I'd try it without any rehearsal and it was actually much more fun. If you know what you're doing from the start to the end of the song, it can't be anything but boring after a couple of gigs. So I figured if we don't know what the fuck we're doing, then it'll be a bit more entertaining. The other occupants of this wee mirrorless blue cube, Danny and Rich interrupt eagerly shoving a book in our faces. It is open at a page containing a decidedly compromising picture of former blondie singer Debbie Harry. Or as Danny puts it, Debbie Harry with her flaps out. An uncanny grasp of the English language has young Daniel, but Flapsuit just about sums it up perfectly. Besides, ogling Miss Harry's bits and in Danny's case squeezing a foot blister so as to get the juice running down the sides for the nice Karan cameraman, how do the Wild Hearts kill the desert of time between soundcheck and gig? Have a couple of drinks, shrugs Danny. You should take up knitting or something. Nah, can't knit, says Rich. Besides, I'd have a wardrobe full of jumpers by now. Ginger, a bloke who likes a swift half or 90, is purposely trying to avoid beverages of the alcoholic kind before a show. He couldn't be less happy if he were forced to chew on a nail sandwich. I just get really bored, he sighs, head hung low. You can't get fucked up, because then the show's going to be shit, but the temptation to get fucked up is so great. Ginger reckons one of the main reasons the Wild Hearts pick really good support bands is so he can go out front and check them out, rather than stay backstage and be taunted by the rider. There are two real good opening acts at the garage, the aforementioned Three Colours Red and Chelmsford Nutter's Real TV. They're great characters, Ginger says of the latter, and their singer Jay can intimidate an audience. Do you spend much time with fans who loiter in the vicinity of venues before gigs? It's different every gig, man, he says, in a tone you'd adopt for either a subordinate or a pain-in-the-neck rock journalist asking asinine questions. You just can't generalise. Some days you feel social and some days you feel that the best thing for everyone involved is if you go and lock yourself away somewhere. Half past eight, the garage is packed and real TV are playing. Odd, but exciting band. Tonight, in a larger venue, they don't have quite the impact as they do in places like Camden's Dublin Castle, where they're capable of tearing out an audience's collective throats. But these are still early days. Three colours red, as ever, are so consistently good it's annoying. And the bloody wild hearts, they just shine. There is, as promised, no set list. Instead, Ginger dangles the mic stand into the crowd and from Sucker Punch to Nita Nitro, if you can hum it, they'll play it. Someone nearby says they sound tight as fuck, which is funny when you think of Ginger supposedly intentionally avoiding rehearsals. But then, however mad his methods might seem to be, the end nearly always justifies the means. The mains are over, they scurry back into the blue room. There they sit hunched and dilapidated. Thankfully, the prospect of playing Ray's Hell with Ray's Hell seems to fire pure adrenaline into their veins and they're back on the stage minutes later. Please welcome the man who created rock and roll, says Ginger as I stagger on. A few hundred people politely inquire who the fuck is Ray's Hell. Before we attack Ray's Hell, it's the first time it's been played it, uh, since Marionette reformed for a dare to support the choir boys at the London Dominion in 1989. Spookily, the choir boys' guitarist that night was a bloke named Ginger. The moment passes like a speeding locomotive. Then I'm watching them tearing through cheap tricks, he's a whore, and the MC5s kick out the jams and rounding off the whole thing with a glorious getting it. Getting it loose, getting it right, Ginger hollers, which says it all. Do you know where you are? <laughs>
All I know is when I was here and I was 17, I was in the middle of a fucking jungle, baby! On location. This week, Lisa Johnson reports from the new Machine Head lineup's first ever gig. The Roxy Theatre on Hollywood Sunset Strip is packed to the rafters. Normally it barely holds 500 people, but this evening it seems like at least 700 have been squeezed in. This is Machine Head's first gig with their new drummer, Dave McLean. As showtime approaches, the atmosphere inside the Roxy becomes increasingly feverish. Sweat is running from the walls and all eyes are trained on the tiny stage which is awkwardly tucked into one corner of the room. Backstage, things are equally cramped and intense. The four bands who make up tonight's bill, Machine Head, Downset, Coal Chamber and the brilliantly named Snot are sharing two dressing rooms, both of which are no bigger than the shoebox. All of them are spilling out into the corridor. The last time Machine Head played in LA, at the end of last year, they'd been on the road supporting the fearsome Burn My Eyes album for 18 months. Their performance that night may have betrayed signs of exhaustion. A few months on, they hit the stage like a large nuclear bomb exploding indoors. The first seismic blast from Rob Flynn and Logan Matters guitars is enough to finally open the San Andreas Fort. They play old and Davidian with sledgehammer subtlety. Let freedom ring with a shotgun blast remains the finest quarter arms of the decade. The entire Florida Roxy quickly turns into one seething boiling pit. Bodies flying overhead from the back of the room to the front. There are three new songs in the set. Frontlines is big, fat and weird all at the same time. Struck a nerve, hurtles along at breakneck pace, fast edit riffs running headlong into McLean's pounding drums and the moodier, more sinister 10-ton hammer is the best of the bunch. Building as it does to a thrilling conclusion where the brooding rhythms are pockmarked by lethal guitar assaults. Naturally, they go down a storm. McLean seems to fit in perfectly, his thunderous drumming proving to be a real asset to the band. Yeah, says Rob Flynn after the show, I think so too. Plus he also seems to be very nice and a bit shy, bless him. Earlier on, Opener's Snot delivered a promising set. They're already attracting attention from all the sleazy A&R types around town. Cold Chamber revealed an uh, interesting stage presence, mainly thanks to their diminutive female bassist who can jump just about as high as she can stand. And Downset mixed a selection of old tracks with some impressively sharp new tracks to smart effect. April 29th in Los Angeles, a night to remember. Stop it, you're killing me. By the time Skinny Puppy split up last Christmas, their singer Nivek Ogre had been through vicious ego battles and cocaine addiction and watched a bandmate kill himself with heroin. He tells Jason Arnott how he survived two years in hell. The most remarkable rock and roll story ever told features huge ego battles, massive drug abuse, a couple of natural disasters and a tragic death. It starts with Canadian industrial pioneer Skinny Puppy preparing to make a new album and ends with them falling apart. Skinny Puppy began recording the process in October 1993. Two years later, they were at war with their record company. They were no longer talking to each other and they had lost synthesis Dwayne Guttel to a drug overdose. All that was left for frontman Nivek Ogre and guitarist Kevin K to do was to quietly lay the band to rest. Possibly, this album should never have been made, says Ogre now. Somebody died and a lot of the stress was a result of a war zone that we created ourselves. What follows is Ogre's own account of the long and tortuous making of the process. October 1993 
Skinny Puppy begin writing in Shangri-La Studios, Malibu Beach, California. Their record company, American, set aside a sizable $650,000 budget for the project. For us, it was way too much, says Old Grey. Instead of using a 24-track recording desk as we'd planned, we ended up with a new setup which no one knew how to use. It became unworkable because the person operating the system had no idea what he was doing. Technology turned against us in a big way. So did nature. No sooner had Skinny Puppy arrived in Malibu than the area was decimated by forest fires. The band were forced to evacuate for a month. It could have been seen as an omen, says Old Grey. November 1993. Producer Roly Moziman, noted for his work with groundbreaking Swiss trio The Young Gods, arrives at the studio. Sadly though, trouble follows. It was one camp against another, says Old Grey. Roly started losing it because Kevin and Dwayne were testing him. They were even hiding computer information from him. I've always believed in giving people their chance, but Rolly became the victim of a lot of head games. He was demonized. As if this wasn't enough, the winter brings severe flooding to Malibu. January 1994. The new year opens with a sacking of Rolly Musselman. I didn't want him to go, says Ogre, but it was a democratic decision. After that, we just sort of floated for a while. Drugs were a major factor in this sense of floating. I relapsed into snorting cocaine and mitts old grain. If I'd had a needle, I probably would have used one. Because I have a needle fixation, but I never had access to one. Dwayne experimented with hallucinogenics and then got into a relationship with a woman who led him down a certain path. By this time, according to Ogre, the drugs had begun to have an adverse effect on Gottel. February 1994. Martin Atkin, the pig-faced drummer, who has also passed through the ranks of Ministry and Revolting Cox is brought in to produce the album. Another power tussle begins. That's because Martin was perceived as being my friend, explains Old Grey. Nevertheless, the band are relatively productive for the next three months. At the end of the Malibu sessions, the process was, says Old Grey, finished to a certain degree. May 1994. Unhappy with the album, Key and Gottel take the tapes up to Vancouver, Canada. The record company let them do it because it was two thirds of the band, says Ogre. But I was pissed off because I thought we had an album we could have worked on. They fumbled around with it for a while. I didn't know it, but Dwayne was having a lot of problems. January 1995. Skinny Puppy recruit Rave, the third producer they have asked to helm the process. A few keyboard parts are redone, but in a situation which is rapidly deteriorating through paranoia and interband fighting, Skinny Puppy are reduced to communicating with each other through their lawyers. June 1995. American Recordings announced that they want to re renegotiate Skinny Puppy's contract from a free album deal down to one. I called Kevin and said we should get out of the contract, claims Ogre. I was thinking, do I want to be in court for three years? Ogre receives no response from his bandmate. He leaves the band on June the 12th. August 1995. Dwayne Gottel is found dead in his parents' bathroom on August 23rd. He suffered an accidental heroin overdose. When you shoot drugs, you're on a long-term suicide pact, says Ogre. We can all take responsibility for what happened to a certain degree. Rave continued mixing the album, although it was painful for him because he was close to Dwayne. October 1995. The finished album is handed over to American Recordings. It was eventually released in February 1996. It's a valid representation of things that were happening to us at that time, says Ogre. But I haven't listened to it since Dwayne died. Kevin Key is now working with his uh, experimental band Download. Nivek Ogre has formed a new band called Welt. Skinny Puppy no longer exists. Beavis, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! 
Lives. And the first concert reviewed this week is Manic Street Preachers at the Town and Country Club Leeds on Monday, April the 8th. Reviewed by Jason Arnup, this one gets 4 out of 5. It's an almost surreal experience seeing the Manic Street Preachers when you thought it would never happen again. It's also sad to see them playing without guitarist Richie James who vanished without trace last year. Well, that doesn't mean we're not pleased that this is happening. When it all went so horribly wrong, there was speculation that singer-guitarist James Dean Bradfield would embark on a solo career. But on a purely musical level, the band was always based around Bradfield, and it's a safe assumption the decision to continue wasn't one the band took lightly. Tonight isn't only going out on Radio 1 as part of the Sound City Week, it's also the Manics' first headline show in 16 months. If they came out tonight and blew us all away, it would be nothing short of a miracle. When they do stroll on, their happiness at being back on stage is tempered by an obvious nervousness. They don't blow us away, instead it's the immensely powerful songs which take over. They open with a majestic from despair to wear, an absolute gem. All slick rock guitar and classic manic angst. It's all coming back to us now, despite the less than sparkling sound. Despair boldly leads into current single A Design For Life, a warming day glow lullaby when Wire rants about television. His target might be surprising and a little unfair, but it's good to hear the lanky fucker take a verbal pot shot at someone again. The excellent Faster follows, and from here on, it's a case of alternating between established greats and material from the forthcoming album. Of the new songs, Everything Must Go stands out, along with Australia. The obvious worry is that they don't sound nearly as inflammatory as previous rants, but it's also clear that the Manics will probably never write a song as caustic as Repeat Again. They don't even play Repeat Tonight. What they do play is You Love Us and Motorcycle Emptiness, the latter one of the most beautiful songs ever written. They leave us with a hyperactive Motown junk after less than an hour, and it suddenly becomes clear that one of the world's finest bands has just learnt how to walk again. If and when they start running, we'll be even happier. The next review this week is for Napalm Death, supported by At The Gates, Crowbar and Face Down at the LA2 London on Monday, April the 8th. Wow, what a lineup! Uh, this one, reviewed by Dave Everly, gets 4 out of 5. On record, Swedish heavies face down sound remarkably like Fear Factory's Scandinavian cousins. On stage though, they blow apart all such comparisons with a short set full of individuality, flair, energy and precision. On tonight's evidence, this lot have the potential to carve out their own distinctive place in the extreme metal world. Crowbar amble on stage like gargantuan lumberjacks with ink on their arms and murder on their minds. Like their New Orleans peers tungsten, the quartet do away with pomp and pretense, stripping metal down to its base constituents of noise, power and density. Crowbar aren't here to fuck about. They plug in, tune up and steamroll the audience into submission. Heavier than fuck say the t-shirts, nobody argues. After Crowbar's titanium rumblings, the ponderous death metal of Sweden's at the gate sounds little more than perfunctory. A situation not helped by a time slot whittled down to a ludicrously short 15 minutes. Neither band nor audience have time to get worked up to anything other than a mild curiosity. They came, they saw, they went, shame. And so Napalm Death. It's easy to forget how long the five piece have held court at the forefront of British metal. Once the laughing stock perceived by many as little more than the excuse for a disparate bunch of non-musicians to indulge in some serious non-music, these days their reputation is such that they can still pack a large club like this with minimal exposure outside of the usual circles. That's not to say that Napalm Death aren't entertaining, they are. For every suffer the children there's the sight of Barney Greenway rampaging around the stage like a bullock with an Aston Villa tattoo. 
For every twist the knife slowly, the Shane Embry bent over his base, shaking his Brillo pad hair just like he did 10 years ago. They might not be the most consistent band in the world when it comes to making albums, but put them on a stage and they're close to untouchable. One day, Napalm Death will get old and turn into status quo, making and remaking the same record until nobody cares anymore. But that's in the future. For the moment, they're as valid and relevant as they always were, and you can't ask for more than that. And lastly this week in lives, we have Civ, supported by Above All, at the Boardwalk Manchester on Monday, April the 8th. Reviewed by Paul Travers, this one gets 5 out of 5. Comparing Southend's Above All to New Yorkers Civ is rather like comparing Wimbledon FC to Newcastle United. The former are a hard-working, muscular outfit who rely on brute strength rather than finesse. The latter, on the other hand, combine class, star quality and a fluent, near-irresistible attack. They also have more fans. Above all, come on and roar at us for 45 minutes. It's an impressively powerful wall of sound built on slab-heavy rhythms and crushing riffs, with vocals that sound like Phil Anselmo chewing gravel after a night out on meths. Nothing wrong with that. Granted, but there's little variation in style and pace and nothing to mark out one song from the next. Ultimately, above all impressed, but they're too one-dimensional to make a real impression. Fall under regulation bludgeon. Civ plays stripped down back to basics hardcore, but they're too sharp in the songwriting department to ever come across as routine. The band have honed their individual skills via a long list of seminal acts, including influential New York outfits, Gorilla Biscuits and Youth for Today. And if it's pedigree you're after, it doesn't get much more impressive than this. Staunchly positive, Civ are concerned with solidarity and the kids, yet they manage to avoid the soapbox preaching so prevalent in today's hardcore scene. Frontman Civ is certainly the most affable hardcore icon in recent memory even overcoming the handicap of bearing an unfortunate resemblance to the bald mutant from classic horror flicks The Hills Have Eyes. Civ start tonight's show with the anthemic United Kids and then never stop. There are gigs where it's possible to stand at the back of the hall, happily making meticulous notes without having to worry whether you're missing anything. This isn't one of them. The area in front of the stage is a slammer's paradise, with limbs flailing in between a steady succession of stage divers and crowd surfers. People go down but are immediately hauled up by a dozen pair of hands as the band temper minute-long speedballs with groovier, bouncier anthems. Can't wait one minute more. And so far, so good, so what? Both have more than a hint of Adam and the Ant-style punk about them. And just for fun, they throw in a cover of the damned classic love song to bemuse the youngsters with floppy fringes and set the spiky top punks bouncing like it was 1977 again. Civ aren't just good, Civ are amazing. We now come to the second of this week's cover stars, Men Behaving Badly. They don't sleep and they don't eat, but television do drink loads of booze and take lots of naughty substances. Liz Evans gets discotech wrecked with the Bradford Boot Boys in Scotland. It's Tuesday, March 26th. It's 6.30am. I have a clear head and clean kidneys. My toothbrush is packed and so are my dancing shoes. I'm well prepared, which is absolutely necessary because I'm going to Scotland, where I will be thoroughly terrorvisioned. Eight hours later, the world is starting to change colour. We're sitting in a hotel bar in Aberdeen. Terrorvision's lovable loombag of a singer, Tony Wright, is perched behind a plate of piled high with chips and a half-empty bottle of scotch. His eyes are already beginning to disappear beneath the pressure of just two days' worth of touring, and he is babbling away. I had this dream last night. That I were hungry, he says, so I came down here and ordered mid-dinner. Then I realised that I'd got up too early and I wasn't hungry at all. 
Happy as Larry, making no sense whatsoever, Tony is deliriously unselfconscious of the fact that no one has a bloody clue what he's banging on about, and it's only lunchtime. Lee Marklew, who is supposedly the sensible one in television, is holding forth on the subject of heavy metal bands like Man of War and King Diamond, and their ludicrous costumes. The affable bassist is nicknamed the Geography Teacher because of the sensible shoes he wears. The Geography Teacher calls up a couple of cabs to whisk us off to Aberdeen's Music Hall. The venue is a posh theatre where you can't even have a fag. The most unlikely place to find television. We wind up in a plush dressing room which is disturbingly full of mirrors and pillars. Tony begins to clamber up and down the pillars like a monkey. Within a matter of minutes, drummer Shatty barges in, sporting bright blue hair, quickly followed by guitarist Mark Yates, who looks like he's spent the previous night sleeping under a hedge. Mark has perfected this down-and-out chick thing. He does, after all, live in a trailer in the middle of the Yorkshire Moors, and a couple of years ago he had his Karanga ward nicked by a tramp when he fell asleep with it on a park bench somewhere in London, pissed out of his mind. The band are ready to sound check. We decide to leave them to it and bugger off for a quick flick through Aberdeen's delightful indoor market with their enduring press officer, Gilliam. We return a couple of hours later to fetch the band for dinner. This consists mainly of Long Island iced teas, margaritas, pints of lager and pina coladas. The waitress rushes over to our table during all this cocktail consumption and asks very nicely for autographs. Everyone in the United Kingdom seems to know who television are these days. Come showtime and television are well away, or as they say in Yorkshire, fired up and leery. With the exception of Tony, everyone will be wearing black on stage tonight. Tomorrow, they will switch to all white and back to black again the night after. Tony, meanwhile, is leaping about in a luminous green creation which makes him look like a small hyperactive Martian, or if you happen to live in Spain, a cleaner. Yeah, in Barcelona, they thought I were a cleaner at the airport because I were wearing my green trousers, he says. All these people chased after me and handed me a mop. The gig itself corresponds nicely to the word smart. Aberdeen loves it. Back in the dressing room afterwards, Tony is smoking something strong enough to fell a large elephant. He tells me to try it and then screws up my face in a big grim and feel how funny it is when my muscles stay there, paralysed in a stupid gun. The effect is weird, but not as weird as the fact that Tony is now starting to make sense. We soon take off for the Paradise Club, where I start to feel vaguely human again. A few pick-me-ups are passed around and the beer is free, so we drown our livers and turn into discotech wrecks. Mark and Shutty storm the DJ box and fight off gaggles of young girls while the defencelessly drunk Tony has been surrounded by people. Gillian comes over all mumsy at times like this because the singer is trapped between a mob of baying girls and their jealous boyfriends and sometimes these things can turn nasty. Tonight though, Tony is incapable of posing a sexual threat to man or beast. He eventually kills over and ends up signing autographs on his knees at the edge of the dance floor where Shutty is strutting his stuff and Lee is being accosted by an extraordinarily young girl. Only Mark is in hiding, utterly mortified because the DJ has played every one of Terrorvision's singles since they arrived at the club. Finally, Steve, Terrorvision's tour manager, rounds everyone up for the drive to Glasgow. Tony has to be practically carried out of the palace. Once on the bus, he inexplicably gathers together a stack of empty pizza boxes, wraps a water tape around them and then crashes down headfirst onto the table where he stays, winding his hair up in his fingers until he is unconscious. Mark and Lee whiz about sorting out the stimulants and the beer and Shutty finds an Oasis tape to play on the stereo. As we drive through the night, Mark tells us how he bought his first guitar when he was 10 for 10 quid and how he built effects pedal boards from his mother's furniture. He then proceeds to obsess about Finn Lizzy, Oasis, The Beatles and The Prodigy for what seems like years. It has been a long night.
Wednesday, March 27th, I wake up with my teeth grinding and my head falling apart. It is at this point that you start to wonder how Terravision can live like they do and why they're not dead or deranged. Put simply, Terravision don't eat and they don't sleep. They cram enough chemicals and alcohol into their bodies to sink an ocean liner and yet they still manage to play blinding shows night after night after night. I've spent one night in their company and I'm incapable of stringing more than two words together. And at 8.45pm, it's all about to happen again. After a few pina coladas, cabs arrive to ferry everyone from the hotel bar to Glasgow's legendary Barrowlands Club, the infamous haunt of serial killer Bible John in the 1960s, and last year the site of a fatal stabbing incident at an Ice Cube concert. In the dressing room, the band are changing into their white outfits. Shutty emerges looking like a contender for the Wimbledon 1996 championships. Lee is wearing his furry trousers, which he insists all women love, and Mark is moaning because he'd rather be in black. As ever, Tony makes the others look normal. Tragically, he's turned up in a white boiler suit which makes him look less like a Spanish airport cleaner, but more like a mechanic. Things get worse in the Wright's sartorial department once he reveals that he will be wearing a garish turquoise ensemble for the show. He now resembles an extra from ER and he's hopping about the place like a black current on a pogo stick. It's time to vacate the room. Out front, the crowd is generally psyched. When television come on to the music from cheesy 70s quiz show Sale of the Century, they go several shades of mental. Then they start dancing like nutters, spinning each other's drinks and slapping and stamping all over each other. All around, grown women are screaming and crying for Tony, and wherever you look, people are pulling on their Just Bought Terravision t-shirts. We are in an asylum and the lunatics have taken over. Tonight, the chaotic backstage entertainment consists of Elvis Presley bearing out of a ghetto blaster and a Loch Ness-sized amount of beer and wine. Once the drinks have been consumed, we stagger off to the cat house where disco hell is in full swing. By now, the pick-me-ups are starting to wear thin and the sound of Saturday Night Fever between the eyes is enough to make any normal person want to kill somebody. Terrorvision, though, are not normal. Shutty is once again in pre-pulp fiction, post-tragic hairdressing accident John Travolta mode. And this evening, Lee makes his dancing debut. A man completely without rhythm is not a rare thing. But when he's a bassist, it's bloody weird if he can't move in time with a simple disco beat. Lee, however, shuffles and rocks back and forth completely independently of the music. Quite possibly, he's listening to a Kiss album in his head. Mark, meanwhile, is taking the piss out of male autograph hunters who always pretend they want the signatures for someone else and desperately trying to plough through countless free beers at the bar. If I have another drink, I think I'll die, he announces. Then he knocks back a large gin and tonic just for good measure. Hours later, we pile into cabs and head for the hotel bar, where silly amounts of margarita are drunk, and people start to break up and head for their rooms, where other goodies can be consumed in private. Lee ends up staying awake till 9am. Mark is up all night and has to battle with an inane Japanese reporter on the telephone in the morning. He later discovers a highly curious envelope stuffed underneath the door to his room. It contains 12 Scottish pounds, and a scrawled note which says, don't ever be scared to rock the Glesgay squad. Shutty has sneaked off somewhere and Tony has no doubt vanished into a sea of nonsensical oblivion. And me, I cannot see. I cannot speak and I cannot move. This is how life looks through television. Enter at your peril. Feedback and the letter of the week this week begins. I just bought Kerrang! and the first thing I read was the festival news when I saw the words Pearl, Jam, Soundgarden and Donington in the same sentence I was ecstatic to say the least. 
Imagine how cool it would be to see Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Nine Inch Nails and Rage Against the Machine on one bill. It would be by far the best ever Donington bill. When I read the Reading Festival lineup, I was equally ecstatic. Rage, Foo Fighters, The Wild Hearts, The Prodigy. So you can imagine how pissed off I was when I realised that yet again, Donington and Reading are scheduled for the same fucking weekend. Did none of the organisers learn from last year? With such incredible bills and no Glastonbury this year, it's quite evident that they don't need to compete against each other. And it's only going to be the fans who suffer. Anonymous, Chipping Norton. I thought rockers were meant to be hard wearing. What happened to Green Day? They can't even finish their tours, so they end up pissing off back home to California. Is a tan that important? We all know how much Billy Joe likes to whine in his songs, but does he have to do it in real life too? I love Green Day, and I guess I'm just disappointed, but a message to all you talented, lucky bastard rock stars. It must be so hard doing what you love, getting paid and laid. We have so much sympathy for you. Clara Donovan, Wolfhamstow. P.S. Daniel Johns, anytime. It's time to settle a long-running debate about the so-called new wave of punk bands like Green Day and Offspring. People who use the word punk to describe these bands obviously have no idea what the word means. I've just finished listening to Beat the Bastards by the Exploited. This is genuine brutal punk. Sheer non-conformist aggression and attitude which the aforementioned bands could never hope to match. And before you all write in and slag me off, listen to this monumental CD and you'll never listen to Green Day again. Casey, the Mohawk Skull. Many times, I've agreed to disagree with Kerrang! reviews. Differences of opinion I can handle. But Malcolm Dome's review of the In Memory of Celtic Frost album issue 591 was sneering, cynical bullshit. Despite its undoubted failings, this album has been put together with superb artwork and an interesting lineup of bands. Dome's favourite track by Emperor is the worst by far. Celtic Frost deserve a tribute album, but Dome deserves a gag. Keith Watson, Cheshire. To the Metal Goon at issue 591. A few things, okay? One, don't start a letter by saying, I am writing. It's fucking obvious, dickhead. Two, all Iron Maiden songs sound the fucking same. Three, the only thing I agree with you on is that Bon Jovi are bollocks. And that's being polite. Four, the future of metal is bands like Nine Inch Nails, Foo Fighters, Korn, Rage Against the Machine and Terrorvision. Maiden are just sad old wankers going through the motions. Cliched rock by numbers bullshit. I'll be fucking off now to listen to some cool music. I reckon you should try the same. The Prozac popping poet Merseyside. I bought the March 30th issue of Kerrang! and thought, what the hell is all this crap? I mean, call me a sad old glam rocker, which I am, and I'm proud of it, but bands these days don't know how to dress. They've all got short hair, long-lived Skid Row, and even Metallica have gone downhill, and oi Pandora, you old slapper, where's the real you gone? And finally, Courtney lookalike Georgina Snowden is too pretty to be the real thing. Sorry, Lacey. Am I the only one who thinks that the Ash vomiting song sounds a bit like a fucking stupid idea? In fact, it's probably not even good enough to wipe my ass on. So my advice is, Ash, come back when your voices are broken. If you're so good at puking, do it in the privacy of your own homes. AD, Nottingham. As a Kerrang! reader, I found out in your mag that my idol in music, Trent Reznor, was being told that his music and lyrics were obscene. As a Nine Nails fan, I wanted to take this opportunity to say that Senator Robert Dole should just fuck off and stay out of the music scene and stick to his bullshit politics. Bugger off, Dole. I hope you get assassinated. Graham, Hull. Ill communication. There are no singles reviewed in this week's Kerrang, so let's move on to the last word. The ultimate questions in life, sex and death. This week, Green Day drummer Trey Cool trades phlegm with Paul Brannigan. 
Last time someone asked if Trey Cool is your real name. Yesterday and every other fucking day. It's a pretty stupid question, is that your real name? Yes, I was born to Mr. and Mrs. Cool and I was named after my grandfather Trey. Like, right. Last time you threw up. We had a serious vodka binge on the last day of our tour and I was pretty fucking ill after that. On tour we work really hard and have to be pretty together to play shows. So when we get the chance to lose it, uh, we tend to go a bit overboard. Last time you bought a pair of bondage trousers. I don't wear bondage trousers, but I got some fine plaid trousers in Kensington High Street Market the last time we were in London, and I thought they were quite punk rock. Last heavy metal album you bought. The last Weezer album. It's totally proper heavy metal with those cool licks and pounding drums. Weezer used to be a really bad big hair band until they realised that geek rock was the future. Last band that made you pogo like a bastard. The Riverdales. The band that we've had on tour with us, they're definitely pogo music. Last time you gave money to charity. We do that all the time with different organisations at home, but the other day I gave some money to a couple of kids in Berkeley who wanted to buy a beer. Getting drunk is a totally worthwhile cause. Last time you dyed your hair. I haven't done it recently, so it's starting to wear out. In my time, I've dyed my hair every colour they make. You name it, I'll wear it. But I think I'll stick with green a little longer. Last time you regretted doing something. Watching Snow White, I just put the video on for my daughter before we started this interview and now I'm getting increasingly distracted by those little bearded guys. Last time you spoilt your daughter. The last time I scraped my daughter, I'll spoil. Hopefully every time I see her, she's only one, so she's not too demanding yet. Last time someone spat at you. Because I'm behind the drums, all the spit tends to uh, fall short or hit Billy Joe or Mike. It's kind of stupid to go to shows to spit on someone you've paid money to see. Did I ever show my appreciation through Gobbin? No way, man. I've too much respect for people. Last time you went to a dance club. The last time we were in Japan, it wasn't like a disco night. They were playing old style UK punk. So we went down and danced like fools all night. Last time you were accused of selling out. That doesn't really happen. I keep reading that we get hassled by punk kids, which just isn't true. Most kids we meet say you guys are cool because you keep your prices down. Anyway, that whole sellout mentality is pretty stupid. Last time you worried about your bank balance. My balls? Oh, bank balance. I thought that was a kind of personal question. I don't worry much about things like that. At least not since 1991. Last good drummer joke you heard. I don't make a point of remembering drummer jokes. Drummers are jokes in themselves. Last autograph you asked for. I don't really go in for autographs, but I did get one when I was 13. I was with my dad and we saw Reggie Jackson, who was a famous baseball player. My dad sent me over to get his autograph. Reggie said, sure thing, little buddy. Scribbled some shit and then looked at me and like, go away, kid. Only now do I understand. Last sports event you attended. We actually watched the Norwegian ice hockey team practicing, which was kind of cool because they were punching the shit out of one another, even though they're all on the same side. Most entertaining. Last time, you were recognised as a famous person. A couple of guys came up to us at the airport recently and one dude said he was a nanny for handicapped kids and they'd all been out to see some of our shows and had a great time. He had a sick bag with him and he got me to sign it for them, which I thought was kind of cool. Last person you want to be left alone in a room with. Any cop with a gun. I've never had any problems with your bobbies, but over here in the US the cops can just come straight up and shoot you and then put a gun in your hand and there's nothing anyone can do about it. I think your guys are a bit more civilised. But then you motherfuckers walked around with swords for centuries like, you got a problem with me? One slice and you're missing an arm. That's pretty heavy. Last bad dream you had. I have this recurring nightmare about the magician David Copperfield. That dude just freaks me out. I hate him. He's a horrible fucker. 
I keep having violent dreams where I'm pummeling the shit out of him and I wake up feeling kind of satisfied. I'm not a violent guy, but I might make an exception for him. How long can you last? Longer than a pink vinyl 7 inch. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy it couldn't get off the turntable. Albums, and the first album reviewed this week is Fishing for Luckies by the Wild Hearts. Reviewed by Liz Evans, this one gets 4Ks. Late last year, our light went out for self-respecting rock fans everywhere. The Wild Hearts, one of Britain's best loved bands, announced they were splitting due, allegedly, to record company bullshit. Thankfully, this proved to be a temporary move designed to lever Ginger & Co off East West, their former label, and now they're back with a vengeance. Fishing for Luckies played quite a prominent role in the Wild Hearts vs the record label saga, acquiring symbolic status as a result. Initially released for fan club members only, East West last year threatened to commercially reissue it with three unapproved studio outtakes, much to the band's disgust. Fiery frontman Ginger called for a boycott of the record and luckily for him the label retracted their plans. But now the album has finally been made available, complete with six new tracks and, on the vinyl version at least, re-recorded versions of Weekend and 29 Times the Pain. The band are happy, the new label are happy and now every Wild Hearts fan can be happy too. Thank God. Despite all the fucking about and corporate traumas, anything by the Wild Hearts has got to be worth waiting for and Fishing for Luckies is no exception. Packed with the usual punch, it shivers with frustration, belligerence, carelessness, good tunes, good times, threats and warnings, bursting with unavoidably infectious songs, buzzed up guitars and enough pop infested riffs to get even your granny grooving. Fishing is a boundless feast of high energy delights. Boasting such treats as schizophrenic, a highly strung paean to individuality, and newly sick of drugs with its Rolling Stones meets Kiss Chorus, the motorhead driven mood swings, and the fuck you and goodbye East West stomp of In Like Flynn. The album is a smorgasbord of moods and temperaments constructed around Ginger's volatile personality. Truly charged but never deranged, fishing careers along at a crazed pace whilst always managing to stay in control, doling out the damage with a wink and a nod, and proving once more why the Wild Hearts are top of their league. Big on songs, some of them over 8 minutes long, and equally big on personality, Ginger's crew leave a trail of attitude behind them. In their wake, they've spawned a litter of spiky, worthy British bands, including ex-guitarists uh, CJ's Honeycrack and the bright, brash Free Colours Red, depositing an unmissable stain on the UK rock scene that's looking alarmingly healthy these days. Fishing for Lucky simply adds fuel to their already sparkling, spitting fire. And whether you've got the fan club version or not, the six new tracks alone merit the inclusion of this one in your record collection. The next album reviewed this week is entitled Vampire or Dark Fairy Tales in Palestine by Cradle of Filth. Reviewed by Malcolm Dome, this one gets two Ks. It's easy to laugh at Cradle of Filth, to dismiss them as noisy nonsense or even ignore them. They look ridiculous, rather like a pack of owls made up to look like Kiss, and seem to be confused as to whether all this black metal stuff is an image or for real. But they do have considerable musical talent, and proved it to great effect on their debut album The Principle of Evil Made Flesh two years ago. Since then, they've undergone considerable lineup changes, and frankly it hasn't done them any favours. Vampire, or Dark Fairy Tales in Palestine, where exactly is Palestine? Somewhere near West Bromwich? tries to balance an out-and-out -out extreme metal attack with gothic atmosphere, but for the most part, it doesn't quite come off. 
The main problem is that the six tracks here are all way too long and run out of steam very quickly. Whereas on the principle, the band seem to have a definitive feel for the wider potential of the black metal style, now they come across as merely restricted by its cliches. Songs such as Ebony Dressed in Sunset and The Forest Whispers My Name provide a furious clash between the two contrasting styles, with attempts at introducing eerie orchestral touches completely overshadowed by the overly frenetic nature of the tracks. The same criticism applies to The Rape and Ruin of Angels, Hassanas in Extremis, which is basically two different songs lumped together under one title. Only on the brooding Queen of Winter Throne is she on the Bogdan, and the grinding she mourns a lengthening shadow that the band effectively display the quality and verve so apparent on their debut, but even here, they stretch the songs into epics when a little sensitive editing would have actually enhanced the mood. Whatever you think of them, Cradle of Phil thanks in a large part to their appearance make it easy for detractors to take pot shots, and Vampire will do little to convince the sceptics they have anything to offer beyond the confines of a genre which itself lacks credibility. A pity really, because there is definitely a good band struggling to break free here, even if it is one that seems overwhelmed by its own self-indulgence. The next review this week is for the band called Seven Mary Free with their album American Standard, reviewed by Liam Shiles' Discets 4Ks. Imagine the scene, you roll home late one evening feeling pissed off, your job is crap, your love life is a fallout zone, you feel unloved, unwanted and not a little drunk, you head for your stereo and a stack of CDs piled next to it, you do not want to be cheered up, you've worked hard for the misery and now you want to wallow in self-pity for an hour or so. The album you reach for is American Standard by Seven Mary Free. If anyone makes a movie version of the Mr. Men, they will not be casting Seven Mary Free frontman and chief lyricist Jason Ross as Mr. Happy. Ross is a man who makes Eddie Vedder look like the Laughing Cavalier. There's a theme tune for every one of your blackest days somewhere on American Standard. If you've just been dumped, Cumbersome is a song for you. If you're feeling guilty because someone else became a victim at your expense, then it's lame. Death, abandonment, hopelessness, hints of suicide, they're all here in glorious shades of black. As if to reflect the sobriety of the themes, Seven Mary Free's music is unobtrusive and in places almost token. Lane rides in alongside a single strummed acoustic guitar. Punch In Punch Out features Ross making his point backed by a soul military snare. Guitarist Jason Pollock prefers meaningful notes over the cascades of distortion most of his peers favour, with only open a water's edge, headstrong and my my opting for the latter course. Elsewhere, the instrumentation is economic to the point of sparsity, allowing the impact of the words and vocals to be fully appreciated. Some people will write off American Standard as yet another piece of flotsam floating along in the slipstream of the success of Pearl Jam and Live. And true enough, it does share several characteristics with recent outings from £3 Thrill and Our Lady Peace. Seven Mary Free, however, have taken the post-metal pastime of torturous introspection to the nth degree. Whilst there will be days when this is the last record you will want to listen to, in doing so, they have infused it with a cheerless beauty which is almost haunting. And finally this week we have the album Vile by Cannibal Corpse, reviewed by Jason Unop, this gets 3Ks. Cannibal Corpse's fifth album, their first without former vocalist Chris Barnes, sees them return in a maelstrom of more gore brutality. While Vile is more interestingly twisted than most albums in the field of no wound barred death metal, it almost inevitably becomes a one-tone affair. Still, at least Vile demonstrates that new growler George Fisher can fill Barnes' blood-caint shoes well enough. 
charts and the number one album this week is Lucky by Skin. Number one in the singles charts is Balls on Parade, Rage Against the Machine and number one in the indie LPs is Happy by Misery Loves Company. The reader's top 10 this week comes from Jess the Cosmic Groove Cat from Wrexham. The Cat's chart begins 1. El Rodeo, Caius 2. Hopkins Witchfinder General Cathedral 3. Ego the Living Planet Monster Magnet 4. Bury Me in Smoke Down 5. Hole in the Sky Black Sabbath 6. Paranoid Typer Negative 7. Albatross Corrosion and Conformity 8. Dying Freedom Paradise Lost 9. One Outnumbered uh, Prong and 10. Gimme Back My Bullets Leonard Skinnard The Star Tracks this week come from Mike Bordin of Faith No More his chart begins 1. Complete Recordings, T-Bone Walker. 2. Volume 4, Black Sabbath. 3. Blow Your Face Out, J Jealous Band. 4. The Best of Sammy Davis Jr. And 5. Blues for the Red Sun by Caius. Next week in Kerrang! Back Issues. Skin and Barrett, Skunk and Nancy, Brit Rock's Golden Girl as you've never seen her before. Also, Smashing Pumpkins, Billy Corgan takes the Kerrang! Challenge. Green Day, Is It All Over? Win a video plus loads more top prizes with your Kerrang! Scratch and Win card. Rage the Machine, angry eight-page poster pullout. Machine Head, Nazi Cops Hassler, Soundgarden, have they got news for you? Plus Typer Negative, Def Leppard, Reef, Siv, Alanis Morissette, Pantera and the Wild Hearts. Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate you. If you'd like to leave a review of this podcast, please pop over to Apple Music or Spotify and give us a lovely rating. And if you don't want to give us a lovely rating, then... Don't leave a rating at all. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, we'll be back next Wednesday as usual. So I look forward to talking to you all then. Bye for now.